Today's reading is Acts chapter 2 and 17, uh, verses 17 to 21. Peter is addressing the crowd, starting at verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on them in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, if you've got your Bibles with me, let's open up to Acts chapter 2. As We'll be hanging out there today as we're continuing our series in the book of Acts titled Mission Plus Family Activated because I want us to be reminded of the purpose of this book of Acts but really the purpose of this church family and every church family. It's our mission to, be, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be active in that mission. And so if you're here last week, we started with what's probably the key verse of Acts, chapter 1, verses 8. This verse sets up basically what we are going to see happen for the rest of this book of Acts. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what we read following this is the story of these people bearing witness to Christ first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world, of the known world. And and we see this being uh, fulfilled over and over and over again through the book of Acts. And the gospel growing and multiplying and spreading to the point of us today being here. And so now with uh, with Acts chapter 2, people usually gravitate either to the first 13 verses or the last four verses and the first 13 verses depict they describe the Holy Spirit coming on those gathered in the upper room like tongues of fire with the sound of a mighty rushing wind a powerful scene where they were filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with power and they began speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance they were then in the temple where there were devout Jews from all over the region. There were Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, just to name a few. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, and everyone was amazed at the scene of these Galileans speaking praise of God and being understood by people in their own language. I had a very good friend and mentor of mine, his name was Enoch, and he was in Adelaide at university. Um, He's a genetic engineer. He actually um, found the genome in sheep that determines the quality of wool and so now can breed according to their genome to get best quality wool. So anyway, pretty cool stuff. But he was in Adelaide, he was a Christian man, and he was in this church and he was praying in a prayer meeting with a group of people and they were just praising God. Another student who was from Asia, I can't remember which country, was walking past out the front and heard these people speaking and praising God and went inside and asked who spoke 
fluent Mandarin, for example, because they heard God being praised and his glory being raised in their own tongue in fluent like it was they'd grown up there. And they asked around, who speaks Mandarin, for example? No one spoke Mandarin. But this person heard God being praised and the gospel being shared in their native tongue. That's a modern day example that happened just a few years ago of what happened here in Acts. And some people think, they look at Acts and think, oh, this is the prescription for what the church should be doing today. Well, let's not get into that argument, but this is a description of what occurred at that moment in time. And so this is the book of Acts. It describes for us what happened, how God moved. And we can take from that examples of how God has moved. His name, his nature doesn't change. He remains the same. He's loving, he's kind, and he wants his gospel to go forth. And so can he do what he's done in the past? Yes, he can. Will he do it? We don't know. So that's just one of those things that we need to grapple with in Acts. It is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive for what we should be doing today. The other sort of group of people that gravitate this passage are really sort of very excited at the working power of the Holy Spirit. And they, they ask, why don't we see this kind of power at work in the church today? You know, why aren't people absolutely bowled over in exuberant praise of God and, and the excitement of praise that breaks down language barriers whenever we meet as a church? You know, where, where is that power in my life? Why aren't we speaking in tongues all the time? Now, where's the energy that you see clearly present in these first 13 verses? And the other group of people, they sort of focus on the last four verses which focused much more on the loving community of believers that had been established. And if we're honest, I reckon most people sort of gloss over the sermon that Peter gives between these two passages. And I'm sure that you've heard many sermons preached on either the first part of Acts chapter 2 or on the last part of Acts chapter 2, but I don't reckon you've heard many in the middle, right? Because it, it, it's a bit heavy at times, you know. It talks about Judas and getting his comeuppance and all that sort of stuff. But what's really important is that we see after the sermon, 3,000 people responded to faith and were added to their number. And so today I really want to hone in on four things from Peter's sermon. We're not going to read it all, but let's get started. Acts 2, 14 to 15. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. So what these people had observed was the euphoria of being clothed with the Holy Spirit, knowing that they had been saved from their sins by the completed work of Christ crucified and fully experiencing his grace and mercy and were now feeling that freedom. So they were being bold. They were having all of their inhibitions destroyed by the freedom in the gospel. And so now they were speaking boldly. They were speaking with freedom and everyone else was thinking that only drunks don't have those inhibitions. It's only drunks that are loose lips like this. So obviously they must be drunk. And so what Peter's saying is, hey, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No one's drunk here. What you're seeing is the fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave us through the prophet Joel. 
And the setting for this scene was Pentecost, which was a festival which occurred post barley harvest and pre-wheat harvest. And so everyone would come together and celebrate and have a great time before heading back to sow the seeds for their wheat crops. And it is in this setting, in the temple grounds, that Peter gets up and preaches his first distinctively Christian message. And so the first thing I want us to understand is this. God meets us where we are. He meets us where we are physically. He meets us where we are spiritually. You see, these people were at a festival. They were celebrating the harvest and kicking back and having a great time together and that's where God meets these devout Jews. That's where Peter gets up and begins to preach. I want to ask you a question. Where were you when the Lord came and found you? For me, in probably what's the most significant way, I was on a bus and I was on the bus on the way back from a camp in my mid-teens where I would really say that that would be the moment, the catalytic moment, where my faith became my own. You see, I do not remember a day in my life where I have not loved Jesus. I do not remember a single day. I'm so blessed by that. You see, I was three when my brother led me to the Lord, and he was four. My mum was in the kitchen and I and my brother were in the lounge room talking and playing and she just listened in this conversation as my brother led me to the Lord in a prayer and everything. I don't remember a day where I have not loved Jesus. You know, and, and, and hallelujah, it's amazing. I, I, I love, I praise God for that. But where were you when God came and found you? See, if you've been brought up in a church home, in a family, you know, as my kids have been brought up, as I'm sure many kids have been brought up, We've been brought up, we, we, we bring our kids up to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as our duty, as, as God-honouring, faithful parents. And so there, there will come a time, though, for those of us who've been brought up in that amazing, loving, home, Christian environment, that where our faith is transitioned from a faith of our parents to our own personal faith in Jesus Christ. Where were you when that happened for you. And for those of you who have not um, experienced the same journey as I have to the Lord, I'm sure you can pinpoint that time where God came and found you. God met you where you were. And I want to dispel an insidious falsehood today that could lead to complete slavery if you don't understand this point. There is no expectation of God that you clean yourself up before you come to him. God meets us where we are. If he required us to do anything first, then God wouldn't be meeting where you are. He'd ask you to change first. And that's not what he does. That's not what happened. God met these people right where they were. Peter stood up in the middle of a crowd at a festival. Now, I want you to drop with me down to verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And follow with me again to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter gets up in front of more than 3,000 Jews just about 50 or 60 days after they'd crucified him and, they t- and tells them exactly that. 
And you know, I think this is one aspect of the gospel that is something that, that can cause so much animosity towards God and towards the church. See, God not only meets us where we are, but God tells us the truth about ourselves. Peter tells the thousands there, you killed Jesus. You killed him. Now, I actually doubt that anyone was in that crowd that would have actually been responsible for killing Jesus physically or actively. In fact, you could probably be sure, considering this was a festival where people came from all over, you'd probably be sure that some of them weren't even in Jerusalem when Christ was crucified. So it would have to be true that there were many in the crowd who in no way participated in the death of Jesus Christ. Do you agree? Yeah, okay. And yet Peter says to them, you killed him. Peter says to them, you killed him. Later again, and in case you didn't offend them the first time, he says it again, you killed him. And you know what? We killed him too. Romans 2, 23 to 25, for all have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement for your sins and for my sins through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And you can see why this causes offence. But I want to look at it a very different way. And I want us to see the, it's actually profoundly beautiful. God meets us where we are. He tells us the truth about ourselves. And the truth about you and me is that we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And I'm so thankful that is true because if God said to me, Aaron, you're awesome, I couldn't worship that God. I couldn't because I know that that's not true. I know that I have selfish tendencies. There are times where I choose things for me first before others. I have materialistic tendencies. I love new things. And, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone here. I I just think that those are two inherent traits that pretty much exist within all of us. We love nice new things and we are selfish. You know, and sometimes I think that that leads to sin. And God says, I know. You don't get to keep secrets from me. And I'm so thankful that I don't have to keep secrets from God because that would be slavery. If I had to, you know, continue to do things to make myself good enough to be worthy of God, then that is just slavery. That's what God got rid of in the Old Testament. See, when they sinned, they had to kill an animal to pay for their, their sin and they had to do it again and again and again in this unrelenting cycle of slavery. Jesus Christ came to give us freedom. And so we are free in Christ. And I'm so thankful that God tells us the truth about ourselves and that we cannot keep secrets from him because if we did, then I, I don't think I'd be able to cope. God loves us enough to point that out, that we are sinners. He tells us the truth. We have fallen short. We are broken. We are in trouble. We cannot fix ourselves. And I praise God that he tells us the truth because there's nothing worse than putting on a fake veneer of I'm okay and trying to hold ourselves up. He knows the truth and it is such a freeing reality. But this offends people. Being told that you are a sinner offends people. The most prevalent and most recent example that's happening right now in this very country is Israel Folau. He puts a post 
on social media, just basically listing a scripture verse saying that people who are sin fall short of the glory of God and the consequences for sin is hell. You know, that is the truth. He puts that on there and he gets a $4 million contract basically taken away. And I think he's actually been unfairly discriminated against by his employer. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out in court because I want us to be standing up as Christians for the freedoms that we have as Christians in a free society. And I thank God that we have a Prime Minister, again, who is a devout Christian man because I think that that's going to go a long way to helping our nation look back to its roots even. Where have we come from? The blessings that we come from are coming from previous generations who have gone before us who have honoured the Lord Jesus Christ and have led in a way which honours and serves him. And I pray that that can be a future we have again as a nation. But I digress. God not only meets us where we are, he tells us the truth about ourselves, but from there the gospel begins to cover what God has said is true about ourselves, namely that we have fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel sets us free. Acts 2, 29-32 Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. And so there's two things in this passage which I want to enter into the truth about us that we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God that Peter just spoken of. First of all, in Christ, his victory over hell becomes our victory. And so, so despite our rebellion, but because of God's undeserved favour towards us, by his great mercy and grace, we now, through Jesus Christ's victory on the cross over hell, we are no longer doomed to hell and Hades and eternal damnation. We too have victory. Christ's victory over the grave is our victory over the grave. And the second thing is that there was no corruption found in the flesh of Christ. And so in this, Christ's perfect obedience becomes our perfect obedience. It's called imputed righteousness. Big word I know. So not only does the wrath of God for our rebelliousness be taken away by Christ's crucifixion, we also get the corrupt flesh of Christ imputed on us. His righteousness becomes our righteousness and we are justified before God by faith as a free gift of grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So God not only meets us where we are, tells us the truth about ourselves and then the gospel invades that truth and creates an alternative opportunity for those of us stuck in our sins, namely that we might be freed from those sins in Christ and counted as righteous with Christ and we might be fully set free from our enslavement to sin. And so where the gospel is proclaimed, what I've just done, we must respond. Acts 2.37 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So these men heard the gospel, heard what the work of Christ had done and what was being offered to them and the Bible says it cut them to the heart and they said, okay, what do we do? So what now? And so when the gospel is proclaimed, we always respond. And I tell you that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. When the gospel is proclaimed, we always respond. We don't have a choice. And I'll explain that for you in a bit. So when the gospel is proclaimed, we always respond when we hear about our guilt and hear about this great salvation that is available through the completed work of Christ on the cross. We either enter into that, we either wrestle with that, we seek out guidance with that and wisdom moving towards what Christ has offered you, or you refuse to enter into that, you refuse to wrestle with it, taking steps instead towards the hardening of your heart towards God and his free gift of salvation. To not respond to the gospel is a response. It is a response that leads to an ever-growing hardening of your heart towards God and it is your decision to take that step towards a hard heart towards God. The opportunity you have though is to take a step towards the softening of your heart towards God to, and to, cons- to constantly sit under the outpouring of grace. And the crowd asked, so what do we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, the Lord our God will call. And so I guess you could say that this moment right here, this moment right here is the birth of the Christian church. Because Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. A new family was formed, a new community of believers. Peter preaches his first sermon and 3,000 people respond with a saving faith in Jesus Christ. God, may my preaching be as effective. And so what did this new family do? What did this new community of faith do? Acts 2, 42 to 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. Now there are three traits here that I want to highlight for us today. Number one is devotion. These men and women were devoted. They were devoted to teaching, they were devoted to prayer, they were devoted to one another. So devoted that they sold stuff to look after the needs of each other as they became aware of those needs. Second of all is gladness. They were glad to be sitting under this teaching and glad at the abundant blessings in Christ Jesus. 
And the third point was generosity. They were generous towards their church family and generous in their response to the gospel in glad submission. And the fruit of this was that people were entering this family daily as they were being saved. And I love it how it says that everyone was filled with awe and enjoying the favour of all the people in verse 47. They were praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. When why not? They were honouring God. They were devoted to him with gladness and generosity. This was how the gospel multiplies. And God meets us where we are. God tells us the truth about ourselves. God offers us new life in the gospel that forces a response and that sets us free. And God then invites us into a new community of faith, a new family. God invites us into his family and just as i close this message today and i'm about to pray may i just ask that we bow our heads and close our eyes and just listen to what god is saying to each one of us here is that okay can we do that now now i'm not aware of where each person is at in their walk with god today maybe some people here are still trying to work out what the deal is with god and what the deal is with jesus and trying to work out if following jesus in faith is for you or not Maybe some people here today have been in church for years yet have stopped responding with a softening approach to the gospel and instead have developed a hard heart towards God. Maybe today God is speaking to you, meeting you where you are at, telling you the truth and extending his loving, gracious offer of new life that the gospel brings, offering you the freedom that comes with a saving faith in Jesus Christ and inviting you into the fullness of faith shedding community in this family here offering you the opportunity to respond with a soft heart towards god and inviting you again to a fresh and vibrant life covered by the grace of the gospel and if that's you here today can i encourage you to raise your hands so i can pray for you just raise them up if that's you and more than that it's so that not just i can pray for you but so that you can do something physically to respond It's a physical response. Thank you for making that commitment to the gospel today. And let me just share this blessing of scripture with you that we can have complete confidence. Acts 2.21 And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Lord, we thank you for salvation today. And for those who continue to respond with a soft heart towards God, May you be encouraged in your devotion to the teachings of Scripture, to fellowship, to breaking of bread together, to prayer, to gladness, to generosity, to praising God and sharing the gospel. Let's pray. God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you today for meeting us where we are. We thank you for telling us the truth. We are broken and damaged. We fall short of your glory. We are selfish and sinful people. But thank you also for Christ's completed work on the cross, bringing victory over death and your free gift of salvation for those who believe. 
Today we call upon the name of the Lord for our salvation. Jesus Christ, we thank you for your sacrifice for us, paying the penalty of our sin, enabling our salvation. We thank you for this family here where we can be nurtured and encouraged in faith and open your word, enjoy fellowship, pray together, eat together, be generous and glad and praise you together. May we be strengthened in love for each other and for those yet to know you as Saviour. May you use us to be your witnesses and to share the gospel. We thank you today for those of us who have responded in faith and trust in you. May you bless each person here and guide us each day. And Lord, we pray for our Prime Minister and our government. We trust in your sovereignty over our nation and we trust in your plans and purposes. May our Prime Minister lead our nation in a way that honours you. May he lead our government in a way that brings freedom and hope. And may these next three years be a time of progress for the gospel in this nation. May thousands and thousands turn from their sin and instead turn to you for their salvation. Amen.